Now, as you imagine a court, uh, typically in my mind, courts were sort of short streets with little bell ends on the end of them, which um, were normal, but not the same as ours. Ours was just a street that ended, and I suspect that was because uh, the planners originally had ideas that they would extend it through into the vacant farmland adjacent to the, to the court there, which rather fortunately they never did. So what it meant was it was just a street that stopped, you know, curbs, and then I think from memory there was a set of bluestone pavers kind of going across the, um, the end of it, and that was it. It was a great playground. It really was a great playground uh, because there were no th cars coming through. We pretty much knew everyone who lived up there and then we would ride our bikes around and around. In wintertime we would play footy, we would just kick the ball around and summertime we would play cricket for hours and hours and hours until either the light failed or stumps was declared by my mother who would come out to the front gate and yell and say, come on, it's time to come in and we'd have to go home. Very sad when that happened. Uh, because that was the end of the day of play. However, as would have probably been the case for most of you, as was for us, there were some very unique rules associated with uh, that game of cricket. Some very unique rules associated with that game of cricket. For example, now I'm really going to have to test myself here. Uh, let's see if we can remember what they were. <laughs> this has just died. Did anyone know how to get the life back into these machines? It was just... Um, Thank you, Bethany. Uh, Kendall? It's just not happy. Anyway, we'll just keep going because we've got the word here. And as Bob reminded me this morning, always be ready. And, uh, <laughs> and we are ready. We had some unique rules. For example, one of the rules was if you hit the ball over the fence into anyone's yard on the full, that was out. And that was a fairly good rule because the fence that was closest to us on the off side was six foot high, wooden fence. Mr. and Mrs. Heffernan lived behind that fence. They didn't have any children. And so if the ball landed in their garden, the routine was you had to go in, you had to knock on the door, you had to ask Mrs. Heffernan really nicely if we could rummage around in their garden to find the ball, and she'd say, absolutely, that's fine, just mind the aspidistra or whatever it might be. Uh, and then we would go into the garden. Thank you, Kendall, you're probably going to get a pay rise this week. <laughs> I won't, we won't just offer it yet. It's, it's still kind of thinking about loading up here. Uh, there was other rules. LBW, that was a tricky rule because there was no umpire stationed anywhere remotely where the bowler was coming in. So how do you actually adjudicate LBW when you've got a fielder over here and a fielder over there and a wicketkeeper back there and a bowler? It's really tricky and generally speaking it was, there were no video replays, none of this kind of, um, you know, instantly you could go back to what had just happened and see what was going on there. Um, and so the, the person who was at square leg might have said, yeah, that was definitely plum in front. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> but if, um, if there was a dispute, the way the dispute was resolved was quite simple, really. It was the person who owned the bat. They had the final say. <laughs> <laughs> there was another really unique rule, which I reckon the cricket board, the Australian cricket board, ought to consider. And I suspect that every single professional cricketer in the world would rather like this one. And that was, you could not go out on the first ball. <laughs> that was a good rule. 
because if you cycled through all of the kids in the street, you know, waiting for your turn to come and have a bat, and then you got up there and you were standing in front of the professional wickets, which sometimes was used as a rubbish bin, um, and you faced up the first ball from the kid at number seven or whatever it was, he came roaring and it went straight through and it, you heard the death rattle of the rubbish bin. How humiliating and disappointing, but don't worry, you get another chance. A second chance, and don't we love second chances? Not only in backyard cricket, but in life. Think about that. Where have you actually been offered a second chance? When have you experienced something where you've thought, gosh, I wish I had a second chance. If only I could turn the clock back and have another go. And perhaps there are times where you've been able to not turn the clock back, but where you've actually experienced a second chance, where someone has said, yeah, I forgive you, let's rebuild this relationship, or something's happened, you've actually been able to go back and have another go and succeed the second time around. We love second chances, and uh, that's uh, one of those things that just shines through this message of Jonah chapter 3, and is the working title of the passage that we're looking at today, the God of the second chance or perhaps I could have called this message the God of the second chance and the third chance and the fourth chance and the fifth chance and the sixth chance and what did uh, Jesus say to Peter how many times should I forgive 70 times 7 you know the God who just continually demonstrates to us grace after grace after grace that's who we celebrate and worship today and aren't we glad Last week, <clears throat> the message that um, Roderick brought from us from Jonah chapter 2 emphasised some really helpful stuff and I think we appreciated very much the, the poignancy of, of Roderick's um, message to us about the subtle temptation of, uh, of idols. In fact, I was thinking about this through the week and I suspect that many of us felt the not so subtle conviction perhaps as we realise just how easily ordinary things became or have become idols for us. And he gave a list of a number of things and some of those really resonated with some of us. In fact, I have to stand here this morning and confess, uh, Roderick, you're not the only one who thinks there's something to do with a nice new shirt that actually <laughs> makes you feel okay. I know there's a few people here this morning who are going, what is going on? But hey, if you're standing up in front of a group of people and you are having a, a, you know, a famous presence on YouTube, <laughs> something nice about a new shirt. In fact, just a month or so ago, uh, I was in Albury. I was meeting a friend for lunch and I had a couple of minutes. So I just slipped into one of the menswear stores over there in Albury. And uh, I went up the back, uh, which is always the best place to shop in those shops. And there they had some of the some magnificent polo shirts. And what was even more magnificent was they were 30% off. I could not believe my luck. 30% off. Fantastic. So I was there kind of making my way through thinking, I can just imagine myself in this. This will look good at work. This will be great when I'm preaching. Look at that. And I actually mentally picked out a couple of them. And then, I'm not sure why I did this, but I went out of the store and I grabbed the phone and I rang Diana. And I think I did that to try and assuage some of the guilt that I might have been having. <laughs> 
And I said, look, I'm in such and such a shop and you wouldn't believe it. They've got shirts on sale today for 30% off and I've looked, there's some really nice ones there. And then she asked a question after that kind of heavy pause and she said to me, how many shirts do you actually need? <laughs> well, we were reminded last week that idols take all sorts of shapes and forms and just like Jonah, we can end up in the belly of a monster. We're compressed on every side by these things that take our attention away from God. We find ourselves in a prison of our own making, but the message last week was so helpful and Roderick brought it too. I think it's worth repeating again and again and again, and that is that there is always, 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 always grace with God. There is always grace with God. I think it was Chuck Swindoll who said we need to preach grace until there is a risk that people will, will accuse us of abusing it. Now, I'm not 100% sure that Chuck Swindoll said that, so Chuck, if you're watching today, um, <laughs> please forgive me. And I may have misquoted whoever actually did say it, but I rather like it. We need to preach grace until there's a risk that people will accuse it. It resonates, and years ago when I read it, it resonated with me because um, I had a, have this sense that we Christians, me, I, I talk about grace, I preach grace, I want to live in grace, but I so easily grab hold of other things and let them become the idols that dictate who I am and how I live. And they're the things that, that I rest upon, they're the laws, they're the regulations, they're the traditions that so easily take me away from living in grace. And so we need to keep coming back to grace, not as Paul says, so that sin may increase. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 6. That's not appropriate. We don't sin so that there is more grace, but we've got to keep coming back to grace and back to grace because we so often fail to live in that space. With God, there is always, always, always grace. And that was Jonah's experience. So the working title for the message today is the God of the second chance because as we see here in Jonah chapter 3 words that are almost identical to Jonah chapter 1 the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time the word of the Lord had already come to Jonah the first time and Jonah had run in the polar opposite direction he ended up in the belly of the monster spewed up onto the beach and then he, in that space, experienced the grace of God who came back to him a second time with the commission that is almost a perfect mirror of the first. Now, God didn't have to do that. God could have chosen somebody else. If God had been like me, God would have said, you know what, you have failed. I'm going to find somebody else to do the job. But God went back to that man who had failed, that fellow, that prophet of his who had run away. And God showed Jonah mercy, and that's the exact thing. The mercy that God showed Jonah is the exact thing that God wanted Jonah to show to the Ninevites, to other people. And if we've experienced the grace and mercy of God, that's the exact same thing that God wants us to demonstrate to others, isn't it? As we live in that space of God's grace and compassion, we live it out in our relationship with others. Well, as we see too in verse 3, as we also see in verse 3, uh, there's a very simple but profound statement. This time Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. 
There's, a, there's, a, there's some, some frustrating stuff about this a whole book, actually. Not just this passage, the whole book. It's very brief. We don't get the details. There's a whole lot that's not talked about in here. A couple of weeks ago, I described for you the, the kind of disposition of the Assyrian people. For those of you who are not here, uh, we talked about the fact that the Assyrians were greatly feared as a, as a nation. They were essentially a terrorist state. They were a wicked, evil people who visited the most horrendous retribution on their enemies, not just, you know, put them in concentration. They just, they were awful. So the question that I have here is, uh, in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. How did he go? Did he go uh, willingly? Did he go reluctantly? Did Jonah go with his kind of knees shaking? Did he go in the power of the Lord? Did he go, you know what, I've just come out of this fish and I'm ready to go? Or did he go, I've just come out of the fish and the first thing I need to do is get these clothes dry clean because they stink? How did Jonah go? We just don't know. It doesn't tell us. There's a whole lot of questions that are unanswered. But it's enough for us to know that Jonah obeyed. We do know a couple of things from outside the text because historians actually tell us that at this exact time, at the exact time when Jonah was going to uh, the Assyrian Empire, there was some stuff going on in the empire that actually shaped a little bit of their response. We know from history that there had actually been a series of famines which brought the empire into a somewhat perilous situation. The crops had failed. And if you're a pagan person, to what do you attribute the failure of a crop? Well, it's not the weather patterns, it's not climate change, it's, not, it's the gods. The gods have failed us. The fertility gods have failed us. And so the Assyrians were already in a little bit of a state of uh, flux, so to speak. Coupled with the challenges of food security was the fact that around this time there were a couple of plagues that had gone through the empire. We're familiar with pandemics, right? That kind of experience had uh, troubled the Assyrians as well. As is common during times of social unrest, there'd been some revolts at the political level and so there was some flux in leadership as well. What's going to happen to us? In the pagan mind, there's all of these things going on. You know, the whole world is in a state of uncertainty and so the Assyrians were very ripe to receive the message uh, from Jonah, this prophet of God. In some senses, we might actually say, and I think it would be true to say, that God had actually prepared the Assyrians for the message of Jonah. That's interesting, isn't it? Last week, Roderick talked a little bit about the provision of God, which we often think about God providing good things for us. But can we see the provision of God in preparing the Assyrians by allowing them to experience some of these difficulties? That's a heretical, potentially a heretical thought to, to chew over for a moment. Is it possible that there are times that we struggle with stuff in life and God's actually allowing that so that we might grow, so that we might be stretched, so that we might learn something? kind of changes the questions that we should ask, doesn't it? Because in the midst of the pressure, the question we want to ask is, God, get me out of here quickly, please. When actual fact, the question we perhaps ought to be asking is, Lord, what do you want me to learn in this place? How are you shaping me at the moment? How do you want me to grow? 
the Assyrians had been prepared by God. And so Jonah preached what was essentially a message of judgment. I have this image of, you know, years ago in Melbourne, there would be people hanging around Flinders Street Station on the steps with sandwich boards. You remember those things? Repent, the end is nigh. That kind of uh, message of repentance. That's a little bit like uh, the message that we see here in the book of Jonah. We don't know whether Jonah preached any more than that. We don't know the content beyond that which is reported here. But what we do see from chapter 4, verse 1, sorry, uh, from uh, this chapter is, to Jonah's amazement, and if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, to his great displeasure, the response of the Ninevites was amazing. They responded in a positive way. The Ninevites believed in God. They declared a fast. All of them, from the greatest to the least. How did that message get around? Jonah could not possibly have gone and spoken to every person or every group. Somehow his message just took, uh, took fire amongst the people. It was passed on from one to another, to another, to another. And suddenly the whole city, an important city, a city that would normally take three days to get around, the whole city from the least to the greatest repented. You'd imagine Jonah would be going, yeah, you know, it's the greatest evangelistic event in history. We hear in this passage that um, the message reached the king who embraced the warning and repented along with the people, declaring a fast for man and for beast. And then, uh, as was typical for those who wished to demonstrate their humility, covered himself with sackcloth, which for those of you who are not familiar with sackcloth, it's kind of like a heavy, coarse, hessian-like material. Uh, take off your normal linen, put the sackcloth on as a sign of your repentance. It was a kind of an uncomfortable place to sit in. Throw dust, you know, the way of showing that you were repenting. Even the king did this. How do you account for this? He declared a fast for man and beast, declaring that even the animals ought to be dressed in sackcloth. There's another curious little statement in the passage too, isn't it? Two things I think we ought to keep an eye on here. Uh, and that uh, these ones and Tim if you want to throw these up by all means I've not followed with the um, powerpoints there two things to take notice of um, first of all this national repentance this, this universal turning away from the violence that is noted there in verse 8 cannot simply be attributed to the social climate that was a little bit perilous at the time the only way you can explain what happened here in Nineveh is to attribute it to the power of the word of God. The power of the word of God transformed that community. Now we're not um, given a lot of insight into what Jonah preached. All we have is the phrase, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's not much of a sermon, is it? You might have actually got that much of the sermon this week if the hope had it decided not to get going. <laughs> 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Um, maybe there was more to it, uh, what he said. Maybe there wasn't. But we ought to marvel at the power of the word of God that brought change to the hearts of those wicked, violent Assyrians. For those of you who are regulars here with us, you'll remember the passages that we looked at from Hebrews, one of which, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, which says, These words 
for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attributes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The power of the word of God. Are we confident in that? Not very convincing, that answer. Are we confident in the word of God? Absolutely, we should be. Because if we wanted to ever see a practical demonstration of the power of the word of God, here it is in Jonah chapter 3, this preaching, which on the surface of it looks very ordinary, really. It actually had an amazing transformative power. And it's worth noting, too, that the Ninevites were not changed by Jonah's compelling, extroverted, charismatic nature. Uh, Jonah did not go in with a worship team as good as ours. Who would he have taken anyway? The Beach Boys? I'll let that one go. Jonah uh, didn't, didn't have a go at friendship evangelism, one of the strategies that I think is really useful in our context, building relationships. He didn't do small group networks. He didn't use clever argumentation. He didn't have PowerPoints. He didn't have fancy technology. It was just the word of God. And in this case, it was a word of pending judgment. And friends, we can be confident in the capacity of God's word to transform because it does. And it still does. I was thinking about this through the week because uh, we saw examples of this while we were working overseas. There was a very clear example that actually happened a little bit before our time. Um, the road from where we lived into the main uh, centre of Mount Hagen was about 65 kilometres and it was populated all along by different tribes, different groups. Uh, and from time to time, no, pretty much all of the time, uh, the trip in was full of adventure. You just never knew for sure what was going to happen on the road. Uh, the road sometimes got washed away in a flash flood, and that happened just a week before Laura was born, I think, so we were kind of scratching our heads wondering about whether we'd actually get to the hospital. Uh, but typically, the bigger concern was roadblocks, as in criminal roadblocks, you know, people who were ostensibly, we're here fixing the road, you know, chucking a few bits of wood in here, so please pay us, and if you don't pay us, there's trouble. Uh, and it ranged from that kind of thing, which was pretty benign, and I always kept a few coins in my pocket to deal with that, all the way through to the much more serious, much more serious, which um, would be demanding cash, demanding valuables, or in the worst case scenario, actually taking the vehicle. And that happened too, from time to time. On one occasion, uh, I was actually driving to school. We took uh, all of our high school students to the local Catholic high school. Um, three busloads, two high ace vans and a coaster bus. And they'd sort of set off in a staggered, you know, once the kids were there, that first bus would go and then the second bus and so on. And on this particular day, I happened to land uh, the second bus. I was driving the coaster bus, 25-seater, fantastic. Uh, full of kids, bus had gone in front of me. Didn't expect to see that one again until we got to the school. And about halfway there, just in the middle of a really thick bit of um, bush, jungle, whatever, uh, suddenly I came upon a whole pile of our kids walking back towards home. And, I, and that's very unusual. So I stopped and I said to them, what's going on? They said, oh, well, we were held up by these guys with AK-47s, automatic weapons, and they took the bus. Took the bus at gunpoint. So I said, well, that's very unfortunate. 
what else are you going to say? And, uh, you know, because, uh, because of the deep compassion and concern, we arranged for those kids to have um, trauma counselling and deal with PTSD and all that. Well, actually, we didn't even think of that. I just said to them, all right, get on this bus, we'll get you to school, and I dropped them off. And that would have been the end of the story, except on the return journey, a little bit further back towards home, I was stopped by a gang of armed men, much less uh, threatening. These guys only had machetes, not AK-47s. Because they knew that one of our buses had been stolen and they wanted to help us recover it. So quickly, get in the coaster bus and we're going to chase them through the bush. And I said to them, are you kidding? This is not a racing car. This is a bus. You want me to drive on these roads that are four-wheel drive only roads in this bus with you who are already agitated and you could see they were ready for, you know, go for it. Their machetes sharp and going. Uh, it just wasn't going to happen. And that was not an unusual kind of experience. And there was a particular section of road, this is why I'm telling you this story, there was a particular section of that road that was known at one stage to be very, very dangerous. The whole area was just given to rascal criminal activity until something amazing happened. The gospel got into that space, the word of God transformed that community, and that whole village, that area actually became one of the safest places on the road. The word of God got hold of those people and men who had previously been given to stopping vehicles and trying to rob them actually stopped doing that. The word of God is powerful. The word of God transforms. The word of God redeems. The word of God works in people's hearts in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And we see that in this story of Jonah and Nineveh. How did that whole city come to a place of repentance? We have no idea other than say it was God's word at work. So let's never underestimate the power, the transformative power of the word of God. Second observation which is worth making from this passage and, and we'll conclude with this one today is this. Uh, repentance, the repentance expressed by the Ninevites embraced all aspects of life. You notice that? There is actually some debate and reasonable debate about whether the repentance of the Ninevites bore fruit. They did not become part of God's covenant people. The language here is not covenant language. It's just the language of repentance. But it's rather interesting that when the king uh, heard about what uh, Jonah's message, the core of Jonah's message, he declared even the herds and the flocks engage in fasting and engage in this act of humility wearing sackcloth. Now, what good purpose? There's a good question. What good purpose could be served by an Assyrian cow wearing sackcloth, really? <laughs> what good purpose could be served by Assyrian sheep? You know, bar, bar, we've all gone astray, Isaiah 53, 6. Those are words that come out of people's mouths, not out of animals' mouths. Why would the animals need to repent? I think if you're thinking that, you're missing the point. And there's a story worth looking at in Luke chapter 19, which might throw some light on this question. The story of Zacchaeus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. 
When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now in this briefest of encounters, this very short interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus actually articulates an important principle that was demonstrated by these Ninevites because Zacchaeus recognised this transformation the repentance that he actually had to express had an impact not just on his spiritual life but on his economic life as well. It impacted the way he conducted his business. It impacted the way he interacted with people in his role as a tax collector. And Jesus acknowledged that we can see, I can see today salvation has come to your house because there's fruit being born from this repentance of yours. And this was true, I think, in the context of the Ninevites. Uh, one of the things that we could say as we look at this, though no good purpose is served dressing a cow in sackcloth, is actually a way of saying on the part of the Ninevites, every aspect of our life has to change. Isn't that true when we become followers of Jesus? We don't just compartmentalise. This part of my life changes, my prayer life changes, uh, what I do on Sunday changes, but everything changes. True repentance, if it is indeed true repentance, impacts our relationships with our husband or our wife, with our children, with those we work with, how we spend our money, our priorities, our sexuality, our, our investments, our insurance, all of that stuff, everything is impacted. It's not just one narrow little thing that changes. Everything changes. Repentance, when it is genuine, changes everything. And this is demonstrated in a really practical way uh, here by the Ninevites. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion, which brings us back to where we started from. Because there is always, 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 always grace with God, isn't there? And you think that Jonah would be jumping out of his skin with excitement. He has just pulled off the greatest evangelistic event in the history of mankind. You turn to Acts and you have a look at the 3,000 that were converted there. That is like a drop in the bucket by comparison. This is a whole city that's repented. Fantastic. How could you do that? Well, again, it's the power of the word. But uh, Jonah is not at all impressed. And Jonah remains unacquainted with the grace of God. Grace, which is the central message of this book. If you ever wanted to speak about grace from the Old Testament, here it is. Rich and full. And it's a reminder to us... <clears throat> You know, whatever it is that we face, whatever problem we might try to resolve, whatever guilt, whatever regrets we might be living with because of past failure, whatever the situation is that we're sitting in at the moment, there is grace, and grace is enough. Grace is enough. 
Grace is enough to overcome even the greatest of enemies. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace overcomes death. And this isn't from yourselves. It's, from the, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's grace. We're going to uh, share communion together in a moment as a response to this grace. I'm not going to say any more this morning other than to invite you to come and take the bread and the cup. As uh, is the custom now, we don't serve to the seats. I'm going to invite you to stand in a few moments and just make your way down the centre aisle. Those of you who are over on this side, the left side, just swing around past the table here and then back to your seats, likewise over this side. Take the bread and uh, share that, uh, eat that as a, a remembrance of Jesus' body that was given for us as a sign of God's grace and hold on to the cup that we might drink together to demonstrate together the grace of God expressed to us. Let's pray before we do that. God of grace and mercy, we thank you uh, that today we have been reminded that there is always, 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 always grace with you. And Lord, we don't presume upon that in the sense that we therefore have permission to live as we might like. But we are so mindful, God, of our proclivity towards sin, of our tendency to fall back into old ways of our inclination towards grasping for idols, even the idol of wanting to make sure our doctrine is pure and right, other idols that trap us, that squeeze us, that pressure us, that take our eyes away from you. But we thank you, God, for the reminder from this book of Jonah that there is always, always, always grace. And each one of us, God, if we look back at our own lives, could map out times where we are ashamed, where we have felt humility, uh, humiliated, where we have been embarrassed by our own decisions, by our own actions, where in our desire to reign and rule we have turned our backs on you, where we have chosen willfully and deliberately sometimes the things that we know are not of you. We thank you that you have forgiven us. <clears throat> we don't have to come groveling back asking for your forgiveness again and again because that forgiveness has been made complete once and for all on the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus. And so we embrace that grace today. We thank you again for the message of Jonah. Lord, help us to celebrate when we see your word transform lives around us and never to be jealous or envious of others and what you're doing in their lives but to celebrate the work that you are doing and to join you in that work that you're doing all around about us Lord let us be uh, people who proclaim grace, let us lean into grace, let us preach grace until there is a risk that people will must misunderstand it for that's your message Lord the message of grace Lord Jesus, we thank you. Bless this time as we continue to worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.